indeed a pleasure to spend the time with the pastors in Montville and the, uh, the young men who are training for the ministry, which is a very nice thing to see as well. Uh, one of my functions in Pittsburgh is to run an institute for Baptist study that we're looking to relaunch post-COVID and uh, excited about that and getting uh, having the opportunity uh, to work with young men who have been who believe that they have been called to ministry. As uh, Pastor Mitch mentioned, the text for this morning, as you read it, the text for this morning is Psalm number 52, so if you'll turn there and have that ready, but let us first attend to uh, going to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God and our Father, we greet you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we come before your throne of grace that you might instruct us, inform us, teach us, Lord. All that we have to learn, we are so weak and so imperfect. We learn things in fits and starts and jitters and bumps, but you are patient beyond measure. Your long-suffering is beyond compare, and you continue to uh, work to improve us uh, through the, the pens of uh, the men who wrote down the words uh, given to them by your Holy Spirit so long ago, and the men who have labored to clarify those words by the illuminating power of your Spirit, uh, even up through today. Father, may we be blessed by this time together. May we remember always to worship you first and foremost above all things and to celebrate the fact that you have given us, even Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray this day and all days. Amen. Perhaps you think that, or you might have thought as you were hearing the reading of Psalm 52, uh, that this may be kind of a harsh psalm to uh, preach a sermon on, that it might be a little challenging to deal with. It is one of the uh, so-called imprecatory psalms, and the word imprecatory is really a word that should bring to your mind the calling forth of God's wrath. It is not the most imprecatory of all of the imprecatory psalms. Uh, there are certainly, uh, certainly psalms where uh, the psalmist calls for the smashing of, of babies against rocks and things that sound harsh, harsh and horrifying as we listen to them. But the thing we need to understand about the psalms, generally speaking, and I'm sure you do under the teaching that you've had in this church for so long, is that the psalms give voice to our pain. Why is that? Because the Psalms give voice even to the pain of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he hung on a cross bearing the burden for our sins. And so no one better can speak for our pain than the one who suffered more pain and suffering than any of us ever has for any reason at all. And if you think that, well, maybe that wasn't so harsh, uh, think about standing standing there, uh, or in the, uh, Jesus' prayer in the garden, pleading before God, Lord, if it be thy will, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. As he was prepared to drink from the cup of God's wrath for the sins, not of himself, but of you and me. And with that note about the Psalms, generally speaking, let's begin to turn our attention to Psalm number 52. My friends, please think about world events going on right now. Think about the invasion of Israel by Hamas. 
the counter-invasion of uh, Gaza by Israel, the war in Ukraine. These are events that are playing out on a, on a global scale. The human brutality that's involved in these events is horrifying at best, mind-numbing indeed. On a more local scale, perhaps the killing and wounding of police officers who are just trying to stop a group breaking into cars, not far away in Philadelphia, your own backyard. Girls being trafficked as slaves right outside Pittsburgh from a hotel room. Uh, Pittsburgh, outside my own backyard. Increased security for synagogues in light of the Israel attacks. Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, which suffered its own world news-making attack from one depraved man. And while these events grab news headlines, the depravity of fallen man plays out on a personal level. While these events are horrible, they, they are attacks from outside the church. I've often said and heard that we should never try to hold unbelievers responsible as Christians because they're not Christians. They are, they are, until conversion, depraved enemies of God. These kinds of attacks that I'm talking about, however, are not new by any stretch of the imagination. We read of the murder of Abel by his own brother Cain following the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden for their sin. Cain was angry with God for rejecting his sacrifice, his worthless, rejectionable sacrifice, and so takes the life or took the life of his brother in a jealous fit of rage. The superscription, the text before verse 1 of Psalm 52, gives us, as Pastor Mitch read, the historical connection. The betrayal of the priest Ahimelech by Doeg the Edomite from 1 Samuel 21 and 1 Samuel 22. And if you know, if you know your 1 Samuels well, you know that 1 Samuel really deals with the reign of King Saul uh, king Saul being the king that Israel desired because other kings had, had, or excuse me, other nations had kings, and they chose a man who was fair of face, but not, God, not necessarily God's choice. God tell, told them, even in the time of Moses, that there would come a time that they would seek after a human king instead of relying on the divine king who had been leading them out of Egypt, out of bondage, and into the promised land. And so Israel chooses this king who's fair of face, but certainly not fair of heart. And we know that the story of David and Saul runs long. David was in Saul's court. He was chosen by God or at the announcement of Samuel from the least of David's sons and all of those things. Time doesn't permit us to go through the whole history of David and Saul and all the things leading up to that. But I do want to turn your attention briefly to 1 Samuel chapter 21. For the background of this story, a case just to recall it to our minds as we approach this text, uh, beginning in verse 1, then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and no one with you? 
And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with young men for such a place. And the story goes on that David uh, appeals to Ahimelech for food to feed the men. Ahimelech makes arrangements to, uh, to provide this aid to him. And then we read in chapter 22 uh, that David escapes from this place and he goes to Adalam, to a cave, cave there, and he goes on. But the story picks up and the, the setting for this psalm is, now this is in verse 8 of chapter 22, now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the heights with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and thousands, or commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? And it goes on in Saul's now growing paranoia and his rage against David, who clearly he knows is, is chosen by God, and Saul is being set aside from this ministry, from his, excuse me, his kingship, to which he was, he was given to the people by God, but not as a gift, but to show them and teach them a lesson. David now, or excuse me, Saul now, decides that the priests who gave David aid are to be put to death. It is Doeg, this Edomite from a neighboring country, who betrays David to Saul and says that, or betrays Ahimelech to Saul and says that Ahimelech the priest gave David aid and David, uh, and so Saul is enraged at Ahimelech, orders that he be killed and his own men won't kill him because he's a priest. But Doeg the Edomite, the very guy who betrayed Ahimelech in the first place, at Saul's command, kills Ahimelech, kills all the priests in that city, and the city is destroyed. And so this psalm, Psalm 52, is a response to that. The setting, my friends, is historical, but the issue is timeless. And even though in that time and in that place, the king's mighty man appeared to win the day, the psalmist is absolutely confident of the victory of Christ over all such evil men. And the psalmist exhorts us all to rely on the steadfast love of God. Notice that the, the superscription, the title calls Psalm 52 a masculine of David. The masculine psalms, there are several of them, are often called psalms of instruction uh, or contemplation sometimes. And Psalm 52 is not just a mere retelling of events. It's a contemplative, thoughtful, instructive psalm. And the very first verse is a question. It says, why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? Now, I want you to know that the Hebrew word that's translated here is boast in most translations, English translations of the Bible, is derived from the same Hebrew word from which we get our hallelujah. Well, we know hallelujah is a, is a, is a word used in praise of God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And it's actually a, an English contraction of a couple of Hebrew words. Praise to God. Hallel and Yah. But this word is, is translated boast, 
But I think that a better translation might actually be glory. Why do you glory in evil, O mighty man? Why do you exalt yourself in evil, O mighty man? What does a boaster do? A boaster is trying to make himself or herself look better by using words and exaggerations and phrases that are designed to get people to pay attention to them, hopefully in a good way, right? And you usually can tell a boaster because sooner or later you'll catch something just doesn't ring true or make sense and, and people tend to figure out that the person is boasting, just the tone and all of those kinds of things. But the psalmist is asking this man, Doeg the Edomite, and all who are like Doeg, why do you glory in evil, O mighty man? Well, we learned some important lessons from this psalm. And the very first lesson is, fear not or do not be afraid of the deceptions of evil men. Now look again at verse one, verse one, excuse me. The psalmist asks his question in the first half, but he immediately counters the evil man's approach. This contrast is, of course, intentional. He's calling out the boasting of the evil man, the glorying of the evil man, so that he can tell them why it is foolish and why it is stupid to do so. There is no purpose in this troublemaker's glorying in his own evil. It is God's love, not his love of evil, not the boaster's love of evil, that wins the day. God's steadfast love is enduring. God's covenant love for his people is enduring and it never fails, it never wanes, it never goes away. And so the psalmist says, why do you glory in evil, O mighty man? Excuse me, one second, I'm sorry. My finger just did something rather weird here. Uh, why do you boast in evil, O mighty man, the goodness of God endures continually. Um, I, would, uh, I would suggest that the word that is behind goodness is the very word from which we get loving kindness in the New King James or, or New King James or the King James itself. The covenant love of God for his people. The fact that God will never forsake and never abandon his people is what makes the boasting and the glorying of the evil man pointless, ridiculous, foolish. Now there's a minor variant reading in the Hebrew texts and some translations may say, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man, and delight in mischief against the godly? Well, what Doeg did was hardly mischief. He killed a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of priests, a whole bunch of people who were anointed by God for their work. But either way, the focus here is on the evil man's misplaced delight. The mighty man is perhaps in the eyes of the world, or simply exalts himself just in his, excuse me, the mighty man is perhaps mighty in the eyes of the world, or maybe just exalts himself in his own. But David continues, the psalmist continues to describe the nature of the evil so-called mighty man. Verse 2 says, your tongue plots destruction. Your tongue plots destruction. I'm sure all of you know someone who, as the phrase goes, likes to stir the pot. 
someone who delights in creating little uproars and little divides among groups of people. That's often referred to as stirring the pot. Likes to to plant little seeds of dissension and and do the work of the enemy in groups of people just to see if they can get some. I think about some of those horrible TV shows about or you know reality TV, which. I don't know that that's really reality, but they think it makes good TV. It's horrible, it's nasty, and it's people spiting one another, like the Real Housewives of New Jersey or something. The man's loves, this mighty man who boasts, his loves are evil, lying, deceit, and words that swallow up other people, that devour it's exactly the sense of the word that's being used there. Doeg accused Ahimelech and killed the priests to gain advantage with Saul. That was his motive. Saul was the one in power. Doeg sees an opportunity to exalt himself, and so he rats out Ahimelech the priest for aiding David and gets him killed. And not only does he get him killed, but he actually carries out the act of killing them himself because no one else would. Tell something, stir the pot in such a way that you look good. Lift yourself up in your own eyes. Perhaps that approach will work for a time. You've all seen this. Someone who deceives in order to gain favor, someone who tears down other people in order to build himself up. Behavior like the serpent in the garden who deceives the woman in his battling with God. You know a doeg. And you know a Saul. Do you despair at the actions of evil men? The death of all of those priests gave David cause to blame himself. 1 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 22 ends with David's statement, I have caused the death of all of the persons of your father's house. I have caused this death by accepting aid, suing for aid from this priest. Like David, we are deeply saddened, sometimes personally saddened, at uh, at the violent acts of other people. Have you never thought what you might do, what we as a people might do to prevent needless evil deaths such as we keep hearing about day after day? It seems like it never stops. Yet these murders, the murders that I've talked about before, the ones here, are the actions of despots and connivers. Adam was responsible for his sin and the serpent for his own actions. But this psalm is not David's confession of sin like Psalm 51. This psalm is not a lament that evil had won the day. Victory resounds in this psalm. Whereas verse 5 teaches us, We are to wait, wait for the justice of the Almighty God. The psalmist declares that the steadfast love of God endures all the day. That's how he says that the steadfast love of God endures all the day. In verse 1, the second half, and David with victory in his voice cries out with this means. Derek Kidner, a theologian, a commentator, points out there are four violent verbs in verse 5. Count them. God will break down. God will snatch. God will tear. God will uproot the evildoer out of the land of the living. This is God's response to the actions of evil men. 
He will break them down. He will snatch them away. He will tear them out. He will uproot them out of the land of the living. Not just smack them around a little bit, but they are gone. And here is portrayed a taste of how great a punishment God will exact on this one who loves evil and loves words that devour. God will break him down, not temporarily, but forever. He will not be punished, but ripped right out of the land of the living. God's punishment for this one who glories in his evil deeds is not for a day, not for an hour, but is everlasting. Broken down, no strength to stand, snatched and torn from the tent, no place to lay his head. Uprooted from God's own land, the land of the living, no place to thrive. A little bit of caution here, we are talking about the person who never repents. We are talking about the person who God does not bring to saving faith. We are talking about the reprobate here. This is the person who will be ripped out of the land of the living, who will never see the new heaven and new earth in that way, but be cast into the lake of fire. Think of Cain. Think of Lamech. Lamech, Cain's descendant, who who had to do everything Cain did and more. Think of Pharaoh. Think of Babylon. Think of Rome. And although David saw the deeds of Doeg, the question is whether he saw God's justice carried out. Well, he certainly did, didn't he? Because Saul did not continue to rule. Saul was ultimately killed. David saw evidence of the fact that Saul was no longer among the land of the living. David ruled where Saul had ruled by God's own appointment and God's own command. But in that time, and in that space, he had no idea what God's justice would be from anything he saw. David Doeg wasn't immediately ripped out of the land of the living. No one you know who is evil is immediately ripped out of this land of the living and taken into hell. Those things are to come. But David confident, David is confident that God's justice will be carried out. David was a type of Jesus Christ to come. He was certainly not a perfect type. No type is. He knew with surety that God's justice would come. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was betrayed not not just by Judas, but was betrayed by his own people who would not accept him and rejected him. Betrayed to his death, and yet there is in Christ no despair. Yes, he went through the difficult process of looking at the cup of God's wrath, sweating blood, all of the expectation of what was to come in his crucifixion, not my will but thine be done. He goes to the cross, he offers himself up a sacrifice, not for sin of his own, but for the sins of you and me, so that we would not be ripped out of the land of the living and cast into the lake of fire. My friends, this is the victory you wait for. Jesus has already won because he will be victorious in the end. Every promise that God has ever made has either come true or will come true because God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. You know Philippians 2, chapter 2, and verses 10 and 11. 
Jesus may have appeared to have lost a battle, but he has won the victory and won the war forever and ever. Let the ones who glory in their evil, my friends, the murderous ones, the immoral ones, let them believe for a time that they have in fact won anything. We will watch them. We will one day rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ as they are cast into the lake of fire when that great and dreadful day comes when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, will rain down judgment upon the heads of all who have dared to mock him and to mock us because of him. It is a serious mistake to think that the day of judgment is not coming. It is a serious mistake to think that there is no hell and no eternal punishment. It is a serious mistake to preach half a gospel that says, Come to me, all you who labor and and are weary, and I will give you rest. No matter who you are, no matter what you do, no matter whether you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, or you just exist on this earth because Christ is love. Obviously, this is hyperbole. This is not what I'm preaching. People believe this stuff, this half gospel, that love wins because Jesus is good and Jesus loves, but they haven't read their Bibles. They don't don't understand that Jesus is going to affirm the very judgment that these wicked people have brought upon themselves and they will face eternal punishment. And God the Father is not some pleasant grandfather who dandles sinners on his knee he receives those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ who have been brought by his spirit to save and given saving faith into the exercise of that faith and those are the ones who will be with God father son and holy spirit in the new heavens and new earth forevermore but if you don't believe if you don't respond to the duty of every every person which is to believe in the words of God to believe that Jesus Christ took on human flesh he died he rose again he ascended into heaven and the spirit came to unite all of those who have been brought to saving faith to Christ you're going to be on the outside looking in and we should lament that people we love and people we know might be in that very position. Almighty God, my friends, prevails in all things. He prevails for all like David who trust in him and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. So, my friends, watch God work and watch him with reverent awe. Watch him. Verse 6 says, The righteous shall see and fear. The righteous shall see and fear. And I'm not talking, the psalmist is not talking about fear that is fear of the judgment to come. The fear is this sense of awe and wonder and majesty at the endless, limitless power of God in salvation. In God carrying out his judgments. In God bringing his covenant people into eternal blessing with him forevermore. We should watch this as we are exhorted to work out our election with fear and trembling. We should be trembling, not in fear, but in wonder that God has said that he will do this and God will do it. 
Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Can you imagine yourself at the final judgment? The incredible majesty of our God, it must be, it's just so far beyond imagining that you can't even really get a sense of what it will be like, but to know that all your sins laid bare in front of God, and God says, you are righteous because I have made you righteous by the blood of my Son, whom I love above all else. That his righteousness is your righteousness if you have bowed the knee and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But to all who did receive him, who believe on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is the fear of God, the holy awe in which you contemplate seeing him on that day. This figure so holy that the angels are afraid to look upon him. The seraphim cover their eyes. The one from whom Moses had to hide in the cleft of the rock. Yet the righteous have no need to fear God's retribution because of Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us firmly in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and elsewhere that those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ are made righteous by God. We are justified by God, not by our own doing. And so David, who himself deceived others, he even arranged to have Uriah sent to the front lines of battle so that he would be killed and David could marry his wife Bathsheba. David, whose sin was laid bare before him by the prophet Nathan, David did not need to fear the retribution of the holy, majestic God at judgment. God said to him, you will not die. But from afar, the psalmist looks on to know what he knows is coming for Doeg, for the unjust, for those who reject and hate God, And he looks on with reverent awe, fear and trembling at the amazing power of our Lord and our God. How much better to be able to look upon God with reverent awe instead of mortal fear when his justice is accomplished at the end of time. The second part of verse 6 says that the righteous will laugh at the so-called mighty man. It is not jeering in verse 7 for the righteous to say, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. The righteous one is not David, nor you, nor me. The truly righteous one is the one who perfectly obeyed the law of God, even Jesus Christ our Lord. The injustice he endured, the injury he endured, no small pain of man could ever compare to what Jesus tasted because of our sin. He is victorious. Who has the right to laugh but Christ? Who has the right to scorn the false refuge of the doegs of the world, the the ones who turn to their own devices Rather than seek refuge, seek salvation in him. Only those for whom Christ has purchased the right, uh, purchased justice before God, have the right to glory, not in our achievements, not in the things you and I have done, but we have the right to glory in the achievements of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
And let us glory in those achievements. Let us proclaim his name before the world and show the world that this is Jesus Christ who has earned all adoration. He is God. And he is owed our obedience and our respect and our awe. All you believe, who believe, all you, the ones he saved, it is for you to flourish in the house of God. Flourish in the house of God. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever seen an olive tree up close and personal. Perhaps you've seen one of those PBS shows where they, in Italy, they shake the leaves of the olive trees with these machines and the olives fall everywhere. But an olive tree is something really amazing. They are not the prettiest trees in the world. Many years ago, I was in Spain, and I went through one on a bus tour, and I saw hundreds and hundreds of olive trees. It got to the point where you just didn't really want to see another olive tree. Thank you very much. But they're twisted. They're large. They have dull green leaves. And yet at the same time, they're beautiful and majestic. It's kind of like when you look at someone who has earned great wisdom with age and you think, my goodness, this person is older and this person is wrinkled, but this person is beautiful at the same time. Because you can see, you see the, the, the handsomeness of that person, their wisdom and their age. Olive trees continue to bear hundreds of olives year after year. Some olive trees are over a thousand years old. The translation, green olive tree, just doesn't bear full justice to David's image. The olive tree flourishes seemingly forever. But you see, friends, an olive tree on this earth has a limit even to its fruitfulness and eventually an end to its life. Sooner or later, that tree will become unproductive and it will be cut down and cast into the fire. But imagine an olive tree in the house of God. Now, in verse 8, David switches from the response of the righteous to the response of a single person. Who is the flourishing olive tree? That is the one who trusts in the steadfast love of God forever. That is one of the members of his covenant, the one receiving his covenant love, who will be protected and preserved in his courts forever and ever. The fatal mistake of the evildoer is his trust in what is momentary and fleeting. His own life, his own accomplishments, on his own wealth. He ignores the facts of eternity and trusts in, or fact of eternity and trusts in things that will prove to be his undoing. David assures us that it is God's steadfast love, God's covenant love for his chosen people, the ones who trust in him for salvation, that are the flourishing olive trees. But even still, there stands a forever flourishing olive tree in the house of God. Right now, there stands a flourishing olive tree in the house of God, the very Son of God who is in heaven preparing a place for you and me who believe in his name. The fruit of this wonderful olive tree consists of believers who, by God's grace, through faith, have been made sons and daughters of God. His fruit, you and me who believe, his fruit trusts in him wholly and completely. 
As I said before, the olive trees of the earth will eventually go into the fire, but the olive trees of heaven resurrected in Christ enter God's courts, rest in his presence, and praise his name for all eternity. No matter what injustices they faced on this earth, and as you know, some injustices are by human manufactured, the doegs and the evil people who, who try to uh, rob God of his kingdom, the people who, who are slaves to the enemy Satan and try to destroy the church. Some enemies are illness and the things that we face because of the sin of man in this life. Some of us know what it's like to have relatives taken away by injustice that's not their own doing. But eventually, all of these olive trees, resurrected in Christ, will be in God's courts, rest in his presence, and praise his name evermore. And so, my friends, rest your praise on what God has done. Verse 9 is is. I think it's one of the most amazing verses in the entire psalm. It says, I will thank you forever because you have done it. Very short, very sweet, very to the point. There is a whole meditation, a whole set of meditations in that word it. David praises God for his justice that will come in a day that David cannot see. Doeg won for a time. David won a victory. He became king of Israel. But even David, the man after God's own heart, was not the promised king. But he knew that God had done it. God's promises, so sure, so exact, that they are accomplished in his time, David said, I will wait for your name because it is good. Jesus Christ, name above all names, for whom David is content to wait. What does it mean? It means everything that God has ever promised. God has done it. And if it hasn't been accomplished in time yet, it is in God's decree. And it will be accomplished in time because God has said that he will do it. And God has done it. And so we can be assured of the fact That even if it hasn't happened, the new heavens and new earth have not yet been made, that God has done it because he said he will. And he will do everything that he has ever promised. The evil man, the man from verse 1, glories in his own devices, his own actions. He's driven by evil. The righteous man glories in the mighty acts of God. God's sure victory gives those who trust him and love him the reason to wait. There is no need to try to take his victory into our own hands. God said, vengeance is mine, not ours, his. There's no need for our revenge because trusting God means trusting the sure knowledge that his justice has prevailed in Christ who who has come. See what David saw coming. David was here long before Jesus walked the face of the earth in human form. See what David saw coming, what he knew with certainty was coming, and know that God's victory is sure. Our Lord will put all his and our enemies under his feet. 
And if you want to know where that phrase comes from, it comes from the Baptist, uh, the Baptist Catechism. I believe it's question 27, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong about that. But what, is the, what, is the, what does Jesus do in his office of king? He rules and reigns over us, and he puts all his and our enemies under his feet. God's name is good. His judgments are righteous. We may not understand them, but they are righteous. And his flourishing olive tree stands in his courts. Trust in God and rest in eternal victory. This psalm of instruction, my brothers and sisters, is what we seek to teach in God's name. Teach people the futility of sin and the riches that come from trusting God. This psalm is the beginning and end of our instruction from God's word. Nine verses, just nine verses, that teach us to turn from evil ways and make our refuge the king who saves. My friends, make God your refuge. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, attend to that. Listen to the instruction that you are given and obey God whose gospel calls you into obedience. Repent of your sins and turn to him and his righteousness. You will not become perfect and sinless the moment you repent of your sins, but you will be forgiven your sins if you seek forgiveness with all your heart from the only one who can give it. That is God in Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit. You will be saved if you truly repent and confess his name. Make God your refuge. Trust in his sure promises and in his son, Jesus Christ, who saves. My friends, trust him and rely on the steadfast love of God. Let's bow together before him. Gracious God, many in this room believe in your name, believe in Jesus Christ, believe that your promises will come true because you have given faith and they have exercised that faith and received your salvation. Father, we pray just as fervently that they, we pray fervently that these will grow that these will become sanctified, that these will be prepared for their place in heaven to come, and that you will never loose them from your hand. You will never cast them away. They will never be thrown into the fire because they will be olive trees in your courts forever. But Father, we know, even if we do not know who, because we cannot see what you can see, but we, even though we do not know who, we know that there are some in every place who sit under the preaching of your word and do not trust in Jesus Christ. And we pray especially for those people today that they will hear your gospel and obey, that you will give them faith and, uh, and by your spirit bind them to Christ so that your joy and ours may be made complete in that day of judgment to come, in the new heaven and new earth, when we all serve God without teaching one another, we all serve your name. Father, you are great and you are good and you are glorious. God, you are almighty and without compare. 
nothing else about which we can boast, could ever stand up to the boasts that we should have in you, the righteous glory that is yours, that you deserve from the beginning of every day until the end of every day and all of the days of our lives. May your name be praised this day and all days. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Number six.